Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. Have you ever observed something that at first it seemed to be one thing, but as you got closer, it appeared to be something else? I didn't think that moving from Pennsylvania to North Carolina would be like me moving into a a foreign country. I'm talking about the people, talking about the animals and the snakes that they have down here. Wednesday night before Bible study, I'm in my backyard and our house is safe, I promise. But it's before Bible study and I'm going back there to, I don't even know what I was doing. I I was taking care of the dog or something. And I see right behind my deck a snake. Now, me and snakes, we're not best friends. Uh, I don't want to bother snakes if they're not poisonous, if they're not bothering me. They're cool. But I didn't want to take a chance because we're getting ready to have Bible study. There's going to be kids in there. There's this snake that's just curled up right there in the pathway of where everybody walks. And so as I got closer, I noticed it kind of got a little bit more aggressive. And you look for the arrow-shaped head, right? So I looked on the back of its head, and, and I noticed that as it got closer, I called my brother-in-law, TJ, to come over and take care of it. Just so I didn't want to get hurt because I was leading Bible study. And so... Um, he came over, and of course, he, he, we're, we're trying to take care of the snake in the most humane way possible because we're not animals. And so he, he picks up a rock, and he's going to try to knock it out, and we're going to take care of it. But as he does so, the snake begins to curl up. And I looked, and I was like, it's got a narrow-shaped head. Back up, back up. And so it starts getting a little bit more aggressive, and so I go in there and grab the rake. And it's laying there, and it's curled up and aggressive, and I grab that rake, and I'm like, I'm like hitting it like this. I don't want to get anywhere near that snake, because who knows? I mean, I'm starting to think about the Apostle Paul is getting bit by the snake. He's, he's you know, island Malta and all those kind of things. And so I, 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 I took care of the snake in a humane way. It was already dead. I went and got an axe and chopped his head off to make sure there was no resuscitation. And then as I took it back to the backyard, I was talking to my neighbor, and as I looked at that snake a little bit closer, I come to find out it was a harmless black racer wouldn't do anything to you and then I felt bad I really did I felt bad because I don't want to kill an animal if it's not going to harm me but what happened was that snake tried to intimidate something that it wasn't and it lost its head when it comes to this Christian life sometimes we can observe someone and they come across one way but as we get to know them a little bit more intimately there's somebody totally different than what we first observed them as From a spiritual standpoint, there are many people that often pretend to be somebody that they're not. And we refer to someone that pretends to be someone that they're not as a con artist or a conman. There was a a man by the name of Victor Lustig. Anybody ever heard of Victor Lustig? Victor Lustig, back in 1925, one day he was sitting out on the balcony of his hotel that he uh, had, had stayed in for a short period of time. And he was reading the newspaper. And as he was reading this article, he noticed, uh, as he's over there in France, that there were some serious problems with the Eiffel Tower. He noticed that there was a lot of uh, mechanical, uh, not mechanical, but more of um, metal issues, a lot of rust that was going on, a lot of corrosion. And so this article is written out of panic. Who's going to take care of this Eiffel Tower, this world trademark, so to speak? And so he came up with this brilliant idea. He was going to sell the Eiffel Tower to those that were willing to buy it. Now, obviously, he didn't own it. This is a true story. You can look it up. 
So Victor Lustig, being this, this genius that he was, he gathered a group of some of the most influential uh, businessmen in all of France, and they came together for this meeting, and they met at this fancy hotel where they do a lot of uh, whining and dining, so to speak, to a lot of different clients. And so he got them together, and he presented this plan of how they needed to buy the Eiffel Tower off of him so that he could, or so they could fix it. And so he goes through this whole process, and then he finds this man by the name of Andre Poisson. Andre Poisson was a successful businessman, but he had very low self-esteem. He was very insecure. And so he thought this would be a way that he could invest into Victor Lustig, make a name for himself throughout the entire world as the man who saved the Eiffel Tower. And Victor Lustig, being the common that he was, knew exactly what Andre's problem was. And so he meets with Andre, he begins to explain this story about how he needed some money up front in order to make the down payment on the Eiffel Tower. And so Andre, being fooled, gives him the money. Victor Lustig takes the money and he's on his way. He just sold the Eiffel Tower, something that he did not own. A few days later, the newspapers came out and obviously they were on to this man. But Andre, being so embarrassed that he was fooled by this comment, never turned Victor Lustig in. So Victor Lustig, after the noise kind of quieted down, came back to France and tried to sell it for a second time. And he almost was successful. But they obviously did a little bit more research and found out that Victor Lustig was not the man that he, he claimed to be. And he ended up getting arrested and spending many years, if not the rest of his life, in jail. It's a serious time when you're going through, uh, when you're trying to con other people. Con orders are nothing new, but since the fall of man, men and women have been fooling people into thinking that they are something they are not. Roughly 50 years after the ascension of Christ, Christianity was experiencing rapid growth, and with any growth comes, from, comes confrontation, with any type of growth, especially spiritual growth. Many religions and philosophies were on the rise, especially ones that were older than this newfound Christianity, which is all based upon grace. Many of these religions were on the rise, and so they were coming about teaching a gospel, so to speak, that was completely different than true Christianity. And so all these Christians were left confused. Matter of fact, there was this, we talked about it last week, Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a teaching that man was a spirit, so to speak, was inherently good, and man did not have a sinful nature, which is completely contradictory to what the gospel says. And so they went so far as to say that Jesus Christ was not man, even though the Bible says that he was 100% man and 100% God. If Jesus Christ was not man, then he could not be the sufficient sacrifice for our sins. And so you had this Gnosticism, which was taking the uh, entire region by storm. You had all these Christians that were newer Christians. They weren't quite sure what Christianity meant. They were followers of Christ, but because of all these different attacks, they had a lot of doubt. And so the Apostle John, being moved by this confusion, being moved by this horrible teaching that was surrounding the Gentile region as Christianity was being spread, he writes the book of 1 John. The Bible says, uh, John says really his purpose, and I love it when authors tell you exactly what their purpose is in writing something. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 4, John says, And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. That your joy may be full. Last week we began a series through this book with the intent of examining John's description of a genuine Christian. John gives us several characteristics. 
of what a genuine Christian will experience as they develop their relationship with Christ. He's trying to weed out the con artist, so to speak. He's trying to help people understand that if your life can be characterized by this, then you are showing evidence of true Christianity, of a genuine relationship with Christ. Last week we looked at uh, specifically 1 John 1, verses 6 through 7. It says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, then we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and with the blood of Jesus Christ. His son cleanseth us from all sin. John's first characteristic regarding authentic Christianity is based upon the association of a person. A genuine person will walk in the light. Their life will be characterized by integrity, knowledge, and truth. They will have a sensitivity to sin and a love for the things characterized by God. John then reminds us in this first portion here that as a Christian, our sinful nature will not be removed. I wish that was the case, but that is not. We will have the power, however, to overcome sin through the power of the Holy Spirit. John encourages Christians that as they sin, they must confess their sin before Christ. We understand that the book of 1 John was written to Christians. So in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it says that, that if we confess our sins before God, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is not talking about the repentance that is required for salvation. It is talking about those that are Christians that do sin, they ought to confess it before God to restore their fellowship. As a Christian, when we sin, our relationship with God is never severed. We never lose our salvation. However, when we do sin as a Christian, our fellowship is hindered. Sin gets in the way of our relationship with God. This morning, we find ourselves in the next section of this letter where John discusses the next characteristic of genuine Christianity. If you take your Bibles with me to 1 John and flip over to chapter 2, and we're going to look at the next section here today in the book of 1 John. So that is 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 3 through 11 here in the next few moments. Within this next section of verses, John gives us this next characteristic of true Christianity. What he does is he provides for us an overall characteristic in verses 3 through 6 by stating that a genuine Christian will keep the commandments of God. And then he goes a little bit more specifically into that in verses 7 through 11. Our goal here this morning is to examine this next characteristic of Christianity and see if this is evident in our own life. Again, not talking about perfection, but to see if this is a common practice. If you could stand with me out of honor and respect of God's word, we're going to read 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. It says, Hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word in him, verily is the love of God perfected, hereby know that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him ought also himself walk, even as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which ye had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. In verse 8, again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. But he that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. 
He that hateth his brother is in darkness and walketh in darkness and knoweth not whither he goeth because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. The title of the message this morning is A True Christian Obeys God's Commands. Thank you. You may be seated. There is nothing worse than uncertainty. Having uh, two children of my own, Emerson's still being a little bit young, but she still goes through those phases where she gets scared. But uh, I have the privilege of, of, of being a parent to two awesome kids. And my wife, uh, Lou, had mentioned this morning in, in the life group's time about how Kate is such a blessing to him. And, and, and I'm, not, I'm being completely honest from the heart. My wife does so much for our family. She uh, takes care of our kids and gives me the opportunity to be able to help pastor the church here. And if it was not for her, and I told this over and over again, if it was not for her, we would not have a church here because it ain't happening with me on my own. But every Monday, I I, I purposely set that day aside as really the the only day a week where I don't do anything ministry-wise. And sometimes that you know, there's things that happen, but I try to do, my wife laughs because she's like, don't always do that as much as you should. Um, but I try not to do anything ministry related on Mondays because that is family day. And so uh, March and April was a really particularly busy time for our family. We were doing some things at the church, getting ready for Easter. We were also moving. And so we had bought a little bit of a fixer upper. And so we were back and forth trying to fix that up as well as packing the stuff at our, our rental home. And so that those really those two months are a really busy time, and so I could see that my son wasn't really getting the quality time that he wanted, and so I, I told him, I said, Kason, when things die down, I promise you I will take you fishing. And that's been kind of a fun thing that we've done here with a lot of the guys in the church, and Kason's only ever been fishing one time, and it was on a Saturday, and I might have been February, so it was cold, a little bit miserable, never caught any fish. And so a few weeks ago, uh, we were, we were driving in the car and he kept asking me, Daddy, I want to go fishing. I want to go fishing. I said, you know what, buddy? I made you a promise. We're going fishing. And so about three weeks ago, it was a Monday morning, uh, Kaysen and I jumped in the car. I was going to go to University Lake, but they're closed uh, throughout the week. And so we drove down to Jordan Lake and uh, we stopped over on the side of the road and there was a pier that went out into the uh, water there. And so I grabbed the fishing rods and, and it was awesome. It was like God purposely just held these, these dumb little fish together in this one little pool because as soon as I dipped the line in there, they bit. I was like, man, you fish don't even know what's going on right now. And so I would dip it in there, and Kaysen was holding the line, and they would bite, and I would hook it. And I was like, Kaysen, reel it in, reel it in. He would reel it in. Everything was great as long as that fish was over here on the hook, not anywhere near him. He had never seen a fish before, like, out, out, in the, uh, out in the open. I mean, he's been to an aquarium, but he wasn't quite sure what to do with that fish. And, of course, the fish have... Um, you know, the, the fins have a little bit of a pokey spine to the back of it, and he noticed that right away. Very observant young man. And so I had to hold the fish. I said, Kason, just touch it. No, Daddy, I don't want to touch it. It'll bite me. It'll hurt me. It'll bite me. I said, no, buddy, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. I'm holding it. So Kason observed what I was doing by holding that fish. And when he realized that it was safe enough to touch, eventually he overcame that uncertainty, and he touched that fish until it moved, and then he didn't want to touch it anymore, but at least he touched it. There's nothing worse than being uncertain in our life. And the Apostle John hits it right on the head here in verse 3. He says, hereby we do know that we know him. You can be confident that you have a relationship with God if you keep his commandments. If you keep his commandments. 
John, uh, in, in the first section here, actually really from chapter 1 all the way down to verse 11 of chapter 2, John gives us two different types of tests. He gives us the doctrinal test and he gives us the moral test when it comes to Christianity. In verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1, he talks about the doctrinal test in relationship to the incarnation of Christ. As I mentioned earlier, Gnosticism took away the humanity of Jesus Christ. And so in verses 1 through 4, John says, listen, he was a human. Take it from an apostle that ate with him, that slept with him, that talked with him, that heard him speak. This was a man. He was not a sinful man. He was also God, but he was a man. I've heard people talk uh, in the past that they, they claim to be Christians, but they did not believe that Jesus was God. They just believed he was a good man. You cannot believe that Jesus Christ was God and God only and not believe that he was a man and vice versa and still become a Christian. The incarnation of Christ is absolutely vital to understanding what genuine Christianity is. As he continues on in chapter 1, from verses 5 down to verse 2 of chapter 2, he talks about the second doctrinal test, and that is regarding man's sinful nature. It is extremely important for a man to understand that they are a sinner and they have a need of a Savior. A lot of people out there that don't realize that they need a Savior because of their sin. That has to take place. There is repentance that has to take place when it comes to developing a relationship with Jesus Christ. Then he moves on in chapter 2, what I read today, with going on with the moral test. He talks about how a Christian must follow the commandments of God. They must be a good person, so to speak, and I'll talk about that a little bit later on, that will show an evidence of their genuine salvation. And then he also talks about a genuine Christian will love their fellow brothers and sisters. So as we move on to this second doctrinal test, or this second moral test here, really, as we enter into John chapter 2, verses 3 through 11, John discusses the moral test of salvation, which leads us into our first point there in your notes. A genuine Christian will adhere to God's teachings. A genuine Christian will adhere to God's teachings. In verse 3, it says, we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Now, at first glance, John seems to be contradicting himself. In verse 8 of chapter 1, John says that if, we can, that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Which indicates that even as Christians, we are still going to sin. John then tells us in verse, uh, chapter uh, 1, verse 9, that if we sin, we must confess our sin. So if John says that we still have sin as a Christian, then why does he seem to indicate here in verse 3 that a true Christian is reflective in those that keep the commandments of God? If we still sin, how can we keep the commandments of Christ? Is John speaking to perfection? How can we best understand this? John comes on even stronger in verse 4, and he says, He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Within these two verses here, John is not speaking about perfection. He's not speaking about perfection because this would contradict what he says earlier. A Christian is not perfect. They will not be perfect until they reach heaven. John says that a person cannot have an authentic relationship with Jesus and obstinately oppose his commandments with their actions. The book of Hosea, it retells the story of the prophet of Hosea, right? And the prophet of Hosea is, is standing before the nation of Israel and he says, you need to repent. You need to repent before judgment is coming. And so uh, the 
God tells him that he needs to marry Gomer, which was a, which was a prostitute, and it was really an image of what, I, what Israel was doing to God and their relationship. Israel, uh, they had gone underneath captivity, and as they're underneath captivity, they go through this cycle, right? Years of being oppressed, they cry out to God, God save us, God delivers them, and then everything is going great. They become more apathetic, and then they fall into that rejection of God again. And so that's what's going on here in Israel. Israel's apathetic. They're not paying attention to the commands of God. They kind of wrote everything off. And so Hosea stands before them in chapter 4, verse 1, and he says, Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel, for the Lord hath a controversy with the inhabitants of the land, because there is no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. He says to them, listen, you have problems. And the problem is you have rejected God. There is no evidence of God in this land. But then he goes on in chapter 4, verse 2, and describes to them the nature of their behavior that indicates that they do not have a relationship with him. And this is what he says. He says, by swearing, lying, killing, and stealing, and committing adultery, you break out, and the blood toucheth blood. In Hosea chapter 2, Hosea accuses the people of living a life that consistently broke five out of the Ten Commandments of God. And what's the key to understand here? God brings judgment on those whose life is consistently characterized by disobedience to the commands of God. The point that John is trying to make here in these first two verses is that a person that says they know God but yet consistently breaks the commands of God and consistently lives a life that contradicts the life of Christ is not a Christian. Matter of fact, the apostle John says that they are liars. Some strong words. I wish with all of my heart that I could be perfect. Not out of a prideful, arrogance way, but because life would be a whole lot easier. I would disappoint God a whole lot more if I just never sinned. But that's not the case. But here's the difference. I have a desire to be more like Christ. And so when I do sin, when I do get caught up in sin, or when I do make mistakes, I am convicted by the Holy Spirit to get that right. Now, some of you have asked me questions in the past about can a Christian receive Christ and then walk away uh, from Christ and go through a period of backsliding but then come back to Christ? Yes, I do believe that that's the case. When a, when a Christian receives Christ and they, they get caught up in sin, what's happening is they're hardening their heart to the Holy Spirit working in their heart. And there can be a period of time where they where they just drift from God spiritually. I cannot determine whether or not a person is a true follower of Christ. Only God can. But if a person says, I prayed a prayer when I was 8 years old or 10 years old or whatever, but the rest of their life is not characterized by a true follower of Christ, they are not sensitive to sin, they have no desire to be able to overcome their sin, they have no desire to be able to please God, then the Bible says that the light of Jesus Christ is not in their hearts. It's not in it. It goes on and Verses five and, and verses four through five, and I want you to notice the subtle shift here. In verse four, he says, um, "He that saith I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar." But in verse five, it says, "But whoso keepeth his commandments, or what does it say there? Whoso keepeth his word." Notice the difference there. In verse four, it says the commandments. In verse five, it says word. What is word talking about? It's this entire book. It's this entire book. So often do people try to compartmentalize and slice up scripture to take portions that agrees with them 
and they obey that, and they hold to that, but they take other portions that talk about things that doesn't make them feel comfortable. They pull that out of the Bible, set that to the side, and say, you know what, that, that's not really for me to be able to obey. The Bible says in verse 5, whoso keepeth his word in him verily is the love of God. A genuine Christian will follow the word of God as a whole. In verse 5, it says the love of God is perfected. Many commentators have different interpretations regarding the meaning behind this phrase. I would hold to the phrase referring to God's love toward us, which is salvation. And the continual process of spiritual growth. In John chapter 14, verse 21, it says, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I love him and will manifest myself to him. Once again, John says in the gospel that a genuine believer is evidenced through habitual obedience. As we continue to grow in Christ, we become more like him. The word perfected in 1 John 2, 5 means to be mature. So a genuine Christian will not only possess salvation, God's love will be matured in their life as they continue to grow in Christ. John concludes this first section on obedience through one final characteristic regarding personal obedience. And just in case a person interprets obedience as to, uh, to really following just certain portions of scripture, he says in verse 6, he that saith he abideth in him ought also what? To so walk even as he walked. You walk in the light of Christ. That word abideth there, some of your versions may say something a little bit different, but that word abideth is a common theme with the Apostle John. Hold your fingers here if you could for just a few moments and flip back to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, I want to take a moment here and just speak about what that word abideth means. There's a lot of people that have different interpretations and it comes through this particular passage. I, I spoke with a gentleman one time for several months, who believed that a Christian could lose their salvation and he used John chapter 15 to support that fact. In John chapter 15, this is what Jesus says in verses 1 through 11. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me, and that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now you are a clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can you, except you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is, with, and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be in my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue you in my love. If you keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I written unto you, that your joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. Once again, a common phrase that the Apostle John uses. This gentleman and many others take this phrase, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. To mean that if a Christian that receives Christ constantly follows Christ, then they will never lose their salvation. But a Christian that receives Christ and falls into sin or no longer abiding in God, they lose their salvation. You have to compare scripture with scripture. 
Scripture will never contradict itself. In John chapter 10, same author, same man, John chapter 10, verses 29 through 30 says that if we receive Christ, he places us in his hand of protection. There's nothing that we could do or say that will ever be able to pull us out of God's hand of protection. So what is this passage saying here? Jesus Christ, oftentimes really trying to relate to his, his group of people that were listening, used the common reference to agriculture. He talked about a vine and the husbandman, which is the vine dresser. The vine is Jesus Christ, and the husbandman, the vine dresser, is God. And so what he says here is that a true Christian, one that receives Christ, is one that is planted within the vine of Jesus. It's Jesus that gives them life. It's the Holy Spirit that gives them power to be able to follow the commands of God. But if a person that says they receive Christ is living a life that contradicts that, then they have never abided, they have never been planted in the vine of Christ to begin with. So if somebody says to me, well, a person that received Christ or they claim to receive Christ and then a few years later they completely walked out on their faith and they said, I no longer want to follow God with my life. I want nothing to do with God. I, I reject God. Can that person be saved or could they have been saved? I would hold to the conclusion that they could not be. I can't. I, I'm going to use, I'm gonna, well, I'll use my wife as an illustration. I'm married to my wife. I'm legally married to my wife before the eyes of God. I'm married to my wife. I can marry her, which we are, 10 years down the road. God forbid this would ever happen, but God or Satan get a hold of my heart. I walk out of my wife. I can tell people that I never had a relationship with my wife. I could tell them that, but the facts are we had a union. There's nothing that we could do to be able to separate us from that. A person that has a genuine relationship with God, in my heart, in my opinion, could never say, I do not believe in God, I reject God, because that, I would hold to the opinion they never had a relationship with God to begin with. Going back here to 1 John, a person that follows God and is a true Christian will evident that through their genuine walk with God. Which brings us into our second point here. Look at verses 7 through 8. Apostle John says this of 1 John chapter 2. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which ye had heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. What commandment is John referring to? In 1 John chapter 3, verse 11, he says this, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. This brings us to our second point. A genuine Christian will love his Christian brothers and sisters. John uses a significant play on words here in verses 7 through 8. In verse 7, he says that this commandment was old. And what he's doing is he's referring to the Old Testament Covenant. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, and Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, it says, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. But in verse 8, John says that this commandment is a new one. How can this be so if it's also an old commandment and a new commandment? What John is referring to here in verse 8, he is not contradicting himself. He's actually referring to the new and fresh way that Jesus Christ personifies love through what he has done for us on the cross. It is a new type of love that we ought to be displaying as Christians, a type of love of grace and sacrifice. 
Romans chapter 5, verse 5 says, And hope that maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. So with that understanding in place, John goes on to explain in verses 9 through 11 that a genuine Christian will evidence their salvation through their love for their fellow brothers and sisters. In verse 9, he says, If a person claims that he is in the light, they are saved, and he hates his brother. If he hates his brother, he's in darkness. Hatred runs counter to who God is. Um, Lou used an example about how he had the opportunity to witness to somebody that was of the homosexual lifestyle. It burns me up to see churches that stand outside um, homosexual weddings or whatever with signs that say you will burn and die and go to hell because of your sin. Pretty sure that's not the type of love that Jesus Christ displayed to his followers, right? Here's the facts. Everyone will burn and die and go to hell if they have not received Christ, whether they're homosexual or not. There's many people in this room that have family members that would be within that lifestyle. As a Christian, what ought we to do? We ought to love them, as Lou mentioned. We ought to serve them. We ought to love them, to lead them to a relationship with God. But my, how oftentimes churches can treat a man who's walked out on his wife better when he's caught up in that sin than a person that is caught up in the sin of homosexuality. They're both sins before the eyes of God. Our job as a Christian is to love them, to lead them to Christ. Because they need that hope. They need that rescue. In verses 10 through 11, once again, John contrasts love and hate. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness. Many people ask, well, what is the brother referring to? And I, obviously it is referring to Christians, but I believe it's more than that as well. There could be a good argument to apply that that brother is refer referring to everyone. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? Jesus Christ is preaching and he's teaching and he talks about loving thy neighbor. And the lawyer stands up trying to trip Jesus Christ up and says, well, who do you consider your neighbor? Or actually, you know what? Before that, he says, well, what, how do you receive a relationship with you, Jesus? Jesus responds back and says, love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with all of your heart. This is evidence of true Christianity, right? The lawyer trying to trip Jesus Christ up responds back, well, then who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? This is a Jewish lawyer. Jesus Christ then gives a parable of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan, again, talked about this before, a Samaritan was a really, really, really bad person in the eyes of Jewish people. They were half-breeds. They were people that kind of dabbled in the Jewish religion and also the worldly religion. They had nothing to do with Jewish Christianity. The Jews hated the Samaritans. The story goes on and says that the priest walked by this, this Jewish man that was injured and kept walking. It talks about how the Levite walks by this Jewish man that was injured, keeps walking. But then the Samaritan comes by. He sees this Jewish man that's injured, laying on the ground, almost dead. The Samaritan, out of the compassion of his heart, picks up that Jewish man, puts him on his horse, takes him to the end, gives him money for that man to be able to recover. Jesus Christ then responds back to the lawyer in Luke chapter 10 and verse 36 with this question after he gives him that story. He says, which of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? I love what Jesus does here. He is forcing the lawyer to say the Samaritan man. Forcing him. The Samaritan man probably gagging, trying to swallow his own pride, but could not. 
responds in verse 37, he that showed mercy on him, then Jesus said unto him, go and do thou likewise. So once again, comparing scripture with scripture, the brother here in this passage is not just referring to Christian brothers and sisters, it's referring to everyone. And he says here, he that hateth his brother is in darkness, he that loveth his brother abides in the light. John concludes this section in verse 11 by explaining the effects of sin in a person's life. John says that a person whose life is characterized by hate is a person that does not know Christ. A person that does not know Christ is a person that is blinded by sin and they spend the rest of their life lost. John says that people who shamelessly practice sin may claim to be enlightened, but they are deceiving themselves. The blinded verb in the, is the same type of verb that is used in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 to describe the God of this age blinding men and women to keep them from beholding the illumination of the gospel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, it says, In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. The first part of verse 11 is a repeat of verse 9. They both say, He that saith he is in the light hateth his brother. And he's in darkness even until now. Verse 11 says, But he that hateth his brother is in darkness. But the Apostle John brings it home a little bit more specifically at the end of verse 11. Not only is he in darkness, he walks in darkness, he does not know where he goes because the darkness has blinded his eyes. If you were to go to this mammoth cave in Kentucky, you will find a little fish that will be swimming around, and they've obviously found it because they have scientific proof that it exists. The fish has eye sockets, but it does not have eyes. And it's not a mistake. See, the fish swims around in this cave. It can't see anything, and so the eyes have more or less no longer been functionable. He has eye sockets, but it does not have eyes. A non-Christian is a person that has eye sockets, but they don't have eyes. The Bible says in the scripture that, that the Holy Spirit will illuminate our path. He will illuminate what the word of God says so that we can be open, so that we can see what this world really needs, and that is the Savior of Jesus Christ. But the Apostle John says that if a person lives a life that is constantly, constantly contradicting the commands of God, they have no desire to follow God, they do not love his brothers and sisters, they always talk about those Christians in a hateful way, then the love of God is not in their hearts. What do we do? We love on them, we pray for them, and respond in a loving way.